Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. Get right to it then and make sure you make good use of the time. So thank you so much for being here and making the time. I know you do tons of interviews, so I appreciate you spending some time here with me today. And for anyone listening that hasn't heard of you, Dr. McCullough, would you just share a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and why you're an expert in what you do? I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I'm also trained in epidemiology, and I practice in Dallas, Texas. I work both as a doctor in the office, occasionally for patients in the hospital, and then I do a tremendous amount of work as a clinical scholar. Uh, That means I'm involved in original research and publication. And since the onset of the crisis, I've been active in original research, in clinical practice, dealing with the uh, infection in patients, uh, and then now dealing with all the issues regarding the emergency use authorized products, both the medicinal products and the COVID-19 vaccines. So uh, I've been busy. I have uh, 56 peer-reviewed publications on the pandemic. First year of the crisis, I was a regular contributor by an invitation to the Hill in print format, second year, and now into the third year. I'm a regular contributor. In fact, have a regular show, a radio show, uh, America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. It converts into a podcast during the week. I'm a frequent contributor on Fox News, multiple shows as well as Newsmax, OEN, ABC, almost all the major media platforms you can think of. And I guess if, if anything that's of interest, people your age, uh, I'm the most uh, frequently downloaded interview of all time for Joe Rogan, uh, ahead of uh, Elon Musk or anyone else you can think of. So we must have talked about something important on the Joe Rogan experience. You absolutely did. It was an amazing episode. And I want to make sure that I go into different places. So anyone that's interested in that can listen to that, but I want to make sure we go cover different ground, new ground. So um, in that light, I'm really curious about what you think should be talked about more at this stage that you find maybe isn't at the forefront or is being ignored, maybe that you want to be asked in an interview, but seems to not be asked enough. What, What do you think we need to be looking at right now? The single greatest issue the public should be, um, interested in is the uh, the statement or the declaration of emergency or emergency status. You know, every uh, school, jurisdiction, state, country, uh, public health authority uh, has some stake or some contribution in the declaration of emergency. So I'd want the audience to know that an, a medical emergency on a mass population scale is actually determined by doctors and doctors in authority. So that would actually be me. And when I testified in the U.S. Senate in November of 2020, I told America I was worried that we could surpass our hospital capacity to handle uh, patients with the acute infection. And, uh, you know, the breakpoint for simultaneously hospitalized uh, individuals uh, by calculation through the Murray model Uh, out of the University of Washington was 129,000 people in the hospital at one time across American hospitals. And we crested in January of 2021 at about 125,000. We haven't been close to that since that time. Uh, We're currently at roughly 25,000 people in the hospital. And we know it's for various reasons. It's not all because of respiratory failure. Sometimes it's concurrent conditions, testing positive, or it's out of panic. You know, there's a paper from the VA by Fillmore and colleagues suggesting that 45% of all admissions are really because people have panicked. The oxygen saturation is less than, is, uh, is, uh, is over 94%. Uh, it doesn't dip low. There's no need for any emergency. And, and we've become far more confident in our outpatient treatment of the illness. It would be rare for me to ever face a patient who's getting sick enough for hospitalization. I have met many patients right now uh, who are ill, but the point I'm making is the emergency status was over with in January of 2021. So here we are in the summer of 2022, and at the federal level, I can tell you President Biden has renewed the emergency status. And when you look around, people are flying on airplanes, they're back at restaurants, everything's back to normal. We're handling cases as they come along. We have effective treatments. The emergency is gone. 
the emergency is long gone, the medical emergency. It doesn't mean there's zero cases, but the medical emergency is long gone. Everybody ought to be asking their schools or jurisdictions or employment, you know, are we still under emergency measures? And if we are, why? Let's go ahead and drop them. Because when we drop the emergency measures, that means we drop mandates. We allow return to normalcy. That's what we all want. Yeah, absolutely. I think we do. And I'm I'm really curious about your stance on individuals and then taking personal responsibility or accountability. What would you recommend? Because not everyone is a, a trained physician and has maybe the vocabulary or the experience. How do we go about this with, let's say, our own physicians when we're in the office and if we're asking questions and then because I think there are two sort of right there's a policy side of it which is the political side but then there's the medical side of hey if I go to my doctor and I want to ask questions so I I don't know if you want to speak on the political side that can get hairy but but the at least the physician side if I'm going to my physician if I have concerns or preventative ideas or just want to advocate for myself outside of this particular topic what do you have to say about that? That's a very perceptive question. It's probably one of the best questions I've heard on all the interviews I've been through. You know, there's a bar on Greenville Avenue in Dallas, and I can walk to it from my house. And it says on the door, uh, your health is your own responsibility. And that's the best. You know, the health is not the responsibility of the, the CDC, the NIH, the FDA. It's not the responsibility of your employer or your school, they don't have responsibility for your health. And and when they step in and claim to have responsibility, that's an overreach. Only you have responsibility for your health. You have your own health autonomy. So we can take certain issues. Let's take wearing a mask. There are 12 randomized trials of wearing a mask. None of them were successful in respiratory illnesses, two in COVID-19. Now, as you know, doctors, dentists, nurses, working at close range, we wear masks. We wear masks in the operating room. I'm a cardiologist. We wear it in the heart catheterization laboratory. It's largely to contain a big sneeze. Maybe there would be staphylococcal or streptococcal organisms in the droplets. We'd want to contain that in a big sneeze. I wouldn't want to sneeze on a patient working at close range. Neither would a, neither would a, a, a hair salon operator or anyone in those types of positions. That's fine to wear masks for general Uh, sanitation, hygiene perspective. If an individual has received a organ transplant, is on immunosuppressives, has severe heart or lung disease, and and really is at risk for pneumococcal pneumonia, mycoplasma pneumonia, influenza, what have you, they may choose to wear a mask. That's perfectly fine. So there's no problems with people wearing masks for their own personal choice. But there's a big problem when they're mandated for perfectly well people to wear them uh, in order to go to school or work or travel. That is a huge problem because it infringes on one's personal rights, particularly when it's not supportable in any way from a science perspective. So that, you know, that's a way, that's a way to interpret masking. Yeah. And so what do I, so I go to my doctor and I say, look, I'm really uncomfortable with this recommendation you've given me what a certain even medication or treatment plan. I feel uncomfortable with this. And I have personally faced this on multiple occasions with many different healthcare professionals. It's like, I'm not comfortable with this treatment plan. I've looked at some research online and then you get feedback either, you know, you're trying to be Dr. Google or, you know, you don't have the full scope, which I'm very aware I'm not a doctor. So I don't have the full scope, but in my limited research, I'm concerned about these medications because these list of side effects. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that's, you know, I can tell you're very intelligent and medically sophisticated. Let's pick up on the issue of treatment of COVID-19. What what are the issues there? Well, if you contract COVID-19 and you're high risk, that is over age 50, multiple medical problems, uh, very elderly, have heart and lung disease, or if you're presenting with severe symptoms, you get it in the first few days, boy, you can't breathe. Those are high risk features and you call your doctor, the first thing you need to know is your doctor has a duty to treat. And if they don't uh, have the scope of practice to treat, they have a duty to refer. This is very important, duty to treat or duty to refer. It's similar to um, uh, somebody going overboard in a boat and you're sitting and, and, and you have, the doctor has the life ring. The doctor does have a duty to, to throw that life ring out, even if they, uh, uh, there aren't guidelines to support this or if all the clinical studies haven't been completed or um, you know, the evidence is inconclusive. 
there are uh, plenty of drug treatment protocols for outpatients supported by medical societies, including the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. One of the most popular ones is the McCullough Protocol that I devised and we tested and showed that it worked. Uh, uh, but the doctor does have a duty to treat. Patients should never take no as an answer. In fact, there's emergency uh, use authorized products that are safe and effective, including monoclonal antibodies, uh, the Pfizer Paxavoid drug, even limited use of the molnupiravir drug, Merck. Um, you know, I don't want to see, see any more high-risk patients go untreated. They're the only ones who get hospitalized, by the way. The only, the only hospitalization is going on is a result of the denial of treatment. Uh, so that, that's a few points on treatment. I think probably the most contentious issue that you could have in the doctor's office would be on COVID-19 vaccination. So, and something like that, I, I, you know, for, so I'm in Canada and we do have some, some differences in our system. Um, but so even about something like vaccination, is it to me, and again, this doesn't have to be vaccination. This can be any subject matter where I feel I'm not getting the level of care that I personally would advocate for myself. I will just go and get a second or third or fourth opinion. So, I mean, that's what I would do if I wasn't happy with the care is that, is that okay? Is there something else? I mean, because that's the only thing I've found that works. Well, you, uh, pressing for the duty to treat is very important. And then I think being armed with very solid uh, public uh, organizational stances. So um, let me give you a, an example for vaccines. Uh, many have heard about side effects of the vaccines, which are acknowledged by Health Canada, by the US FDA, and they largely include heart damage, blood clots, and brain damage. I mean, these are horrible things for young people to sustain. And, and again, our governments say that they happen with the vaccine. So if a Canadian doctor approaches a patient and says, listen, you should really take one of these vaccines, a, a fair thing to say is to say, listen, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not sure they're safe enough for me. Now, you're not declaring they're safe enough for, for everyone, but not safe enough for me. And what type of medical backup would you need? I would go to the World Council for Health now, World Health Council for Health. And on June 11th, uh, 2022, that's just a few days ago, they issued a pharmacovigilance report, a, really a careful summary of the safety of all the vaccines used worldwide and they used the um, well-recognized safety systems. They summarized worldwide 3.5 million vaccine injuries acknowledged by these safety systems and 40,000 deaths. And the World Council for Health, which represents 70 organizations worldwide under an umbrella, it's a very, very broad group, well-supported, has concluded that the COVID-19 vaccines should be withdrawn from the market they really shouldn't be used. And so you could simply say, listen, I, you know, I've read the World Council for Health report. Um, you know, I'm concerned with that. And, uh, you know, I don't think any doctor is going to be, be able to overcome that report. It's, it's, it's conclusive. It's conclusive. And, uh, you know, you may want to ask, doctor, have you carefully read this report? If you haven't, you know, here's the link or here's a copy. Um, I think that's a good way to proceed. It's, it's non-confrontational. It's evidence-based, it's fact-based, and you can move forward. You know, there's one other contentious issue in COVID-19 I want the, the listeners to understand, and that is if you have a loved one in the hospital. Hospital care for COVID-19 has come under careful scrutiny uh, for, uh, for at least one important point, and that's the use of a drug called remdesivir. Remdesivir was the first American emergency use authorized drug uh, to be uh, put in use to treat COVID-19. The World Health Organization reviewed all the data, including the largest study they conducted with remdesivir. And in 2020, they, they held a consensus conference and they had all the doctors who knew remdesivir well, all the clinical trials, ethicists and others. And the World Health Organization concluded that remdesivir should not be used to treat COVID-19 patients because it resulted in more deaths, kidney damage, and liver injury. So should not be used. This is very important. And no government or hospital or health system 
has presented any evidence to the contrary. So if Canadian hospitals are using remdesivir on Canadians, uh, they need to understand immediately to step in and stop that. Uh, it's very, very important. In the United States, there is what's called perverse incentives. Hospitals have been receiving financial bonuses if they use remdesivir, even uh, in, you know, in cases where uh, it's against the patient's will or the family's will. There's been case reports of it being administered in delirious patients. So I think Canadians ought to know, stop that practice right now, deny, uh, deny it, uh, decline it, and then enforce high-quality treatment. There's a concept called medication reconciliation. Any drugs that are started to treat a condition as an outpatient should be continued as an inpatient. So in the McCullough protocol, that would be the use of monoclonal antibodies before patients come into the hospital. The use of virucidal nasal washes. So dilute povidone, iodine, or hydrogen peroxide, that should be continued in the hospital. The nutraceutical bundle, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin. The use of an antihistamine and acid called famotidine, that's actually prescription in Canada. It's over the counter in the United States. You should press for all of those. This is all in the uh, published literature. It's in the protocols posted by uh, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and the Truth for Health Foundation. And then beyond that, there's additional drugs that have been shown to be useful in the hospital uh, and outside inhaled budesonide, uh, oral or intravenous pre uh, prednisone or prednisolone, uh, oral aspirin, full dose, oral colchicine. And then in high-risk patients, the use of uh, blood thinners, anoxaparin, widely available in Canada. There ought to be very intensive drug treatment in the sick inpatients. And the deaths that I'm seeing in my analysis of inpatients, they're all inadequately treated. So I think that Canadians listening to this ought to be thinking, you know, is my loved one, are they adequately treated? And press for treatment. This is very important. Review the medications with the nurses and doctors and say, listen, I'm not comfortable. I know there are protocols out there that give even more intensive treatment. The rates of death are far too high in the hospital. Contemporary ICU mortality for a COVID patient in the Harvard Stop COVID program is still over 30%. That's astonishing. Uh, you know, with the highest risk heart attack that I deal with, the mortality is 2%. So I can tell you uh, the hospital's too late for treatment. Patients are inadequately treated. And there's a lot your listeners from this podcast can do with the information given. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. It was so thorough and I'll make sure to write it out so that people can easily grab that as well. And I know that you've dedicated so much time to this over the past few years, but I am really curious. I know, and I know you're still working on it. You've got your book there. It's really, although you're saying the medical emergency is over, I don't believe the topic is over yet, but what else is on your radar at this point, if anything? I've been following the epidemic curves. So uh, in Canada and in the United States, uh, and I've been following this because in my family, we have Canadians. So my, my kids included. So um, we had the original wild type alpha outbreak that hit New York and Detroit, New Jersey. Uh, then we had the, um, the alpha wave that came through 2020 and now the delta wave through 2021. And then towards the end of 2021, we had a very tall Omicron outbreak, very tall. It was five to 10 times as big as all the other ones, but it was very narrow. And Omicron broke through natural immunity it broke through vaccine immunity. And our CDC told us in December 10th, 2021, in the MMWR, that 79% of all Omicron patients were fully vaccinated. So it was clear the vaccines failed against Omicron. Very strong signal there. And uh, that, that first Omicron wave came down. And then we've had a secondary Omicron wave. And I just posted on my Twitter feed, P underscore McCullough MD, the hospitalization curve for Canada and I juxtapose that with the announcement of some changes uh, of mandates and restrictions for Canadian travel. So it turns out Canada's through its second uh, Omicron hospitalization, basically hump in the curve. Doesn't mean there's zero cases, but they're manageable and people can obviously go about their business. So I've been following that carefully. Many have said now is a good time since we have a little time to travel uh, to go ahead and read. And the book uh, you mentioned is is uh, the title of it is Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Deaths While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. It's a fast read. It's a fun read. It's 309 pages, about 45 quick chapters. 
I wrote it with uh, true crime author, John Leake. And John uh, already has some bestsellers. He's a full-time author. He's a pro. It reads so well and fast. It's interesting. It's funny at times. And it really tells the story about how myself and other doctors in my circle stepped forward. We started treating COVID patients. Uh, and then we started to actually receive resistance for the first time, you know, trying to help patients. We received resistance and active suppression of early treatment. And what we've concluded is that those who are suppressing treatment of Canadians and Americans were doing so in order to uh, advance the vaccine agenda. That, in fact, there's a very strong vaccine syndicate of stakeholders that really are hell-bent on mass vaccinating the entire population. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting stuff coming out of the Davos meetings, I think, around that. So it's, it is a fascinating time, I think, in that regard. And you've done some phenomenal work. I do get, I, so I just listened to you do an interview about this, um, this with a potential senator, but I did want to touch upon monkeypox because I know it's this next sort of discussion and I do we need to sound the alarm what's what's up well we need we need a review of what we know about monkeypox so in brief monkeypox was discovered in 1958 and monkeys in the Congo basin first human case 1970 there's a wonderful review written by Dursky and colleagues published in MMWR the CDC journal in 2018 Dursky indicates that there are you know, roughly 1,000 plus cases per year from 1970 forward. There was a U.S. outbreak in 2003, about 48 cases suspected and confirmed, no mortalities, very easily managed. Monkeypox is in the smallpox family, the orthopox viruses. It includes um, cowpox and camelpox, now monkeypox. Uh, it, it's a, a zoonosis. It's spread from animals to human humans, it results in large blisters uh, on the body, the arms and, and the legs, and also on the palms. That's a unique thing about monkeypox. It's largely spread by breaking the blisters and getting the liquid spread to someone else or through saliva or um, urogenital secretion. So it can be spread uh, with active sexual intercourse of somebody who's covered in these blisters. And um, it doesn't spread very fast or very far. There are occasional cases. There was a case in Dallas last year in August of 2021. It was published by Rao and colleagues in MMWR, the April 22nd edition in 2022. And Rao summarizes this man went to Atlanta and Dallas, had lots of contacts, ultimately was put in the hospital largely to try to reduce any potential spread. He's treated with TPOX or Ticoviramat, very effective drug. He does fine. They, they evaluate all the contacts in Atlanta and Dallas he came in contact with, he didn't spread it to anybody. So uh, the bottom line is, uh, you know, we do fine with this. It doesn't spread. It's easily treated with an FDA approved drug that's safe and effective. Uh, we, um, uh, you know, have a situation where probably because of COVID-19, the whole world is kind of primed for another pandemic. We know that the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, and the World Economic Forum formed CEPI the Center for Epidemic Evalu Evaluation and Preparedness Innovation. And CEPI, you know, is well-funded. It's actually an organization that has business plans, that it issues a business plan for the next viral pandemic. And, and what we're saying is, listen, monkeypox is, is not the next viral pandemic. There's no need for a business plan and start to have injections of money coming from treasuries to deal with this. We've already seen a knee-jerk reaction from the U.S. federal government. They actually bought 13 million doses of the Genios vaccine. The Genio vaccine is a live attenuated uh, vaccine for monkeypox and smallpox. Um, and this is worrisome because the Genios vaccine has never been proven to, to stop a case of transmission. It's only approved based on the antibodies. And the Genios vaccine is associated with heart damage or myocarditis, just like the Vaccinia vaccine was when it was used for smallpox. There are published cases of heart damage with this new vaccine. So the U.S. has bought 13 million doses of it, and I, I can't imagine any of these doses are going to be used. I've heard some suggest we should do perimeter or rim vaccination in individuals who came in contact with uh, monkeypox. I can tell you, if I come in contact with a case, I'll just 
follow myself carefully. And if I ever contracted it or anybody, any of my patients, I would just treat them with the medication. It's very simple. Uh, there's a case in Dallas right now, and the patient's being treated at home with ticoverimab. It's, it's just a skin rash. It'll go away. It's easily treated with the medications. The other point is uh, in publications by Simpson and Beer in 2019, uh, the, the whole problem was re- reviewed. And fortunately, those who received the smallpox vaccine, which is pretty much everybody over age 50 in Canada and the United States, they already have protection against monkeypox. So I, I checked, I actually called my mom to see if I got the smallpox vaccine. She reassured me that I did. So, you know, I don't have personally, I don't have any worries about smallpox. I wouldn't, you know, I think anybody over 50, even if you're younger, uh, uh, you know, just watching out for somebody who's loaded with, who's sick and is loaded with these uh, large blisters over, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't avoid someone like that. You wouldn't shake hands or, or have close contact with someone like that. You'd encourage them to get treatment. Uh, it's not spread readily through the air. I don't think anybody needs to wear masks or, or get alarmed. I appreciate that very calm, <laughs> rational response. I think sometimes it's easy with the media to get so hysterical about things and sensationalize things. And that's what I feel, at least I've been experiencing over the past few years. And it just creates a mountain out of a molehill sometimes. So I appreciate that answer. You mentioned Dallas a bunch of times. I do have to ask you just personally, because I am looking at moving there. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about Dallas. Do you, do you like it? What do you, <laughs> You've been there for a while, so... Well, I grew up there and I went to Baylor University just 90 minutes south and then the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. And I left for a long time. I trained at University of Washington in Seattle, then the University of Michigan. I was in Southeast Michigan for a long time. Uh, my wife is a Canadian. She's a Torontonian. So uh, her uh, family home is just uh, up by North York Center. If you people in Toronto know uh, North Young Street, it's just uh, Young Street at North York Center. Uh, that area. Uh, But, you know, we've been disappointed uh, as Americans and Canadians looking back at the Canadian government. It's been very disappointing. The Canadian government has not been evidence-based. They have not provided high quality early treatment to Canadians to keep them out of the hospital. Uh, They've had, um, I think, very adverse sets of policies. This one about uh, requiring vaccination to get on a plane in Canada. Canada is a huge country, and I recognize People in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, they rely on planes for their job. Uh, The COVID-19 vaccines don't stop transmission. Our CDC and all the health authorities agreed. So uh, we know the vaccines can't play any role in travel policy because they don't stop transmission. Uh, You know, these are the types of of things that people need to understand when when, when studies, and there are studies by Chow, Acharian, Rhymerisma, and Acorsi, they show that vaccinated or unvaccinated, there's an equal viral load in the nose and the mouth when someone gets sick or screened for COVID-19. So it's clear the vaccines don't work uh, at any level to influence whether or not someone should get on a plane. Those mandates never should have been put in place, never. Uh, and, and the fact that they were kept there for so long and they had an adverse effect on Canadians, I don't think the Canadian government will ever be forgiven by the Canadian people. The other thing that Canada's done at the border, as well as uh, for travel, is asymptomatic testing. This is very important. Uh, When people have no symptoms, there's no need for asymptomatic testing. Our FDA has never cleared any of these tests for asymptomatic testing. The PCR test and the antigen test are only FDA cleared as an aid in making the diagnosis of COVID when someone's sick with COVID. They have no regulatory approval for asymptomatic testing. The World Health Organization, as of June of 2021, said no asymptomatic testing, none. Don't do it. It's not evidence-based. And we've had a bevy of studies come out from the Japan Olympics, from uh, the U.S. uh, Collegiate Athletes, the NCAA, and from workplaces. Many of these are in JAMA. If you go to my Twitter feed, P underscore McCullough MD, you can scroll back and find these. The general findings of all these asymptomatic testing studies is less than 1% of the time is the test ever positive. And when it is, the majority of the time is false positive. So asymptomatic testing has no role. Uh, We know if someone's had SARS-CoV-2 infection, they can intermittently test positive for months 
There's one person who tested intermittently positive for over a year, but they're not contagious. So asymptomatic testing doesn't play a role. What makes somebody contagious is when they're actively sick. What I'd want people to know is when they're actively sick and they have fever, congestion, coughing and sneezing, that's the time to not get on a plane, not to go in a congregate setting, stay at home, get through the illness. And, and honestly, that would apply for SARS-CoV-2, but for any common cold, uh, that would apply for mycoplasma or chlamydial pneumonia, um, forms of pulmonary infection, even for pneumococcal infection. Uh, you know, when you're sick like that, people should stay at home. And this is getting back to just common sense. I would say the other thing that people should do is common sense when they travel now is make sure you always travel with some povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide. This is really important. Let's take povidone iodine. 10% povidone iodine, uh, which is the sta standard brown liquid that the doctors use to sterilize wounds in uh, the operating room or in ER. Uh, if you just take half a teaspoon of that, one and a half ounces of water or a shot glass of water and a pinch of salt, you can put that in a spray bottle and carry it with you. And um, you can use it uh, twice a day for prevention. Just squirt some up in the nose, sniff it back and spit it out. Do it twice on both sides. Gargle with the rest. That's a thorough oral nasal wash. And it's been shown in 12 clinical studies to reduce the viral load in the nose if you actually acquire it out there um, uh, on the road. And then in active treatment, we do it every four hours and it reduces uh, the duration of infectivity dramatically, about 80, 90% reduction in PCR positivity within a couple of days. So you don't spread it to other people. That's really important. And, um, and then it reduces the need for oxygen or hospitalization dramatically. 12 clinical studies, three large randomized trials most important thing I've learned is oral nasal virucidal therapy. So dilute povidone iodine. You can buy that online for about $5. There are um, brands you can buy, but they're more expensive. One is called Cofix RX. A lot of people get Cofix RX only because it's a small travel bottle. It doesn't leak and it's already prepared and ready to go. Uh, and then if one can't tolerate iodine or can't get it, the standard household 3% hydrogen peroxide it comes in a brown plastic bottle. You can use that. Uh, just three quarters of a teaspoon, again, 1.5 ounces or a shot glass of water. I know the Canadians are big drinkers. They know how big a shot glass is. And a uh, pinch of salt. And again, same thing, spray it up the nose, sniff it back. It's got to go all the way around, spit it out. That kills the virus up there. Do it twice on each side, gargle with the rest. That's a thorough nasal wash. If either one of the solutions stings, that means it's too strong. Make it more dilute. It doesn't take much to do that. You know, Canadians have been obsessed with hand sanitizer. All over Canada, you see hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. The hand sanitizer doesn't do anything. The problem is the virus is up in the nose. You know that because they put the, the swab up the nose. So it's not a hand infection. And we don't even swab the hands. That should tell you hand sanitizer is useless. Your common sense should tell you the problem is in the nose. The virus is replicating the nose for about three to five days. And we need to use virucidal nasal washes. Most important thing I've learned. Well, it sounds like there's a lot that we can do for prevention. And I know you talk about this a lot. Um, what else from, because you mentioned people that are hospitalized have a bunch of different factors that bring them there, but for, let's say the average person, or maybe someone that has one factor or even someone with multiple factors that look, that is looking to just boost their immune system. I know everyone, you know, you hear vitamin C and you hear those basic vitamin D. Um, is there anything else that you think should be on our radar just so that we're more, our immune system is stronger overall, not just for this, but just flu season, generally speaking. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. So the virucidal nasal washes work for flu, SARS-CoV-2, other infections. So that one is good. And if you don't want to make the home solutions, I mentioned Cofix Rx. There's another one called Clear, X-L-E-A-R. That works, but that's done on a daily basis. And then lastly, colloidal silver. There's uh, um, those are, you know, purchase products you can get. So everybody ought to have something, you know, I travel personally, I travel with the Povidone iodine, because if when I'm traveling, if I feel like I'm coming down with something in a hotel room, I don't have all my usual things at home, right? And so I really um, need that, I guess, security blanket that I can do that and get myself out of having a cold of any type. So I don't get sick on the road. Now, besides that, uh, there's a lot of literature that's evolved in the last two years on nutraceuticals and supplements. So what we've learned is during acute illness, zinc, 50 milligrams of elemental zinc a day is evidence-based. Uh, 
uh, vitamin C, but at a higher dose, 3,000 milligrams a day. Uh, a polyphenol substance called quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day. And then in acute treatment in the United States for SARS-CoV-2, we actually use uh, famotidine or Pepsid, but at a high dose, 80 milligrams a day. But the most preventive daily thing that one can do, and I'd want all Canadians and Americans to hear this, is vitamin D. Vitamin D appears, appears to have a very special role in immunity and protection, certainly against SARS-CoV-2, paper after paper, including randomized trials, and, uh, and, um, uh, and even a meta-analysis showing that achieving a, a serum level of vitamin D greater than 50 is associated with almost zero COVID-19 hospitalization or death. So we actually use vitamin D as a prevention. Most people need 5,000 international units a day of uh, vitamin D3. You can buy this uh, over the counter. And, uh, and then vitamin D levels less than 50. I always tell patients in general, you know, double it one or two days a week. And then during acute treatment, less evidence-based, but we do it short-term. It's in the McCullough protocol. Uh, we actually boosted to 20,000 international units a day for five days. But vitamin D is a steroid hormone. It's a, it affects uh, intranuclear, intracellular functions. And it has this exquisitely beneficial relationship with SARS-CoV-2. We also know that sunlight helps convert vitamin D. So getting 15 minutes of sun on the face and upper shoulders is advised. I know in Canada, it's hard to get. You have those battleship gray skies up there. Down here in Texas, it's sunny most of the time. We know, by the way, across the equatorial regions of the world, there's the lowest rates of COVID-19. The other thing is on my Twitter feed today was a survey that those who are unvaccinated uh, actually have less severe cases of COVID than, believe it or not, the vaccinated. And that's probably because unvaccinated are leaner, they're fitter, they're more confident in their bodies. They've taken care of themselves. Now's the time for everybody to drop some pounds, uh, go for walks or runs, really get fit. Because if you do get SARS-CoV-2 or the flu or any other illness, you're far more likely to survive it if the heart and lungs are strong. That should make common sense. Uh, people who have really gained a lot of weight, people who have trouble breathing, uh, even just in day-to-day -day life or have sleep apnea where the where the neck is really thick and they're having trouble breathing. Those are the people I worry about with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. So losing weight and getting fit since COVID-19 is not going away. Very, very important public health messaging. I'm so disappointed that the U.S. and Canadian public health authorities are not giving any practical prevention advice to the citizens for this illness. We're in our third year of this, and there's not a word we hear about uh, fitness uh, and about prevention. Which other countries have done, right? When you see in, in the southern countries, I think Ecuador, if I'm not mistaken, but Mexico has taken a very interesting approach. So definitely, and I'm, this might be splitting hairs, but I am curious about vitamin D because I've heard that um, a precursor to it or something that supports it is magnesium. And I circulating around is this whole idea that magne we're actually magnesium deficient, a lot of us. And so that is something that's inhibiting or making difficult the absorption of vitamin D if we do go outside and get it. For, so what, what's that relationship? I'm, I'm sort of fascinated because it seems that people are so quick to latch onto one supplement or one sort of miracle cure for any kind of illness or challenge, health struggle they have. But oftentimes, the more I read, there, there's so many complex interactions. So vitamin D is one of them that I've just been sort of going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm a conventional, what's called allopathic doctor, so I really focus on prescription medicines and diagnostics, but others in the nutraceutical, naturopathic, holistic, integrative space uh, will really tell you that there's a wealth of literature on nutraceuticals and supplements, but magnesium is particularly interesting because a lot of the water supply across North America is actually deficient in magnesium. And to make matters worse, a lot of people drink water that comes through a refrigerator filter or filtered water, or even worse, bottled water, which the magnesium is completely filtered out. Magnesium is needed for potassium absorption. It's needed for cellular um, ionic balance, and it may have a special relationship to vitamin D absorption. So uh, I commonly recommend magnesium, typically for cardiology reasons, patients having extra heartbeats, 
muscle cramps at night. Anybody have muscle cramps and restlessness at night? Uh, and so a common general recommendation is uh, uh, what's called chelated magnesium. So not the type of magnesium you'd buy at the corner drugstore. The typical over-the-counter magnesium is magnesium oxide. It's not well absorbed. We recommend chelated magnesium. The most common version of it is magnesium malleate. Magnesium malleate, about 400 to 800 milligrams taken at night is a reasonable remedy for muscle cramps. Of course, patients should consult their doctors. Uh, we need to have good kidney function and, and no other um, contraindications to receiving magnesium, but it is a supplement to be considered. Yeah, I appreciate that. And especially the water piece. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about that. That sort of takes me down a road of being very interested about food choices. Do you, I think it's always been the case, but now just there's carnivore, there's veganism, you've got everything in between. It's like, you've been talking about a lot of things that are common sense or bringing us back to common sense. So I'm really curious about your stance on diet, just generally, but also in this particular subject matter, I am so, so curious about what you think there. I'm glad to ask. So um, if one could outline some goals of what they wanted to achieve with diet, I would say the majority of people I talk to, uh, if they could, their goals would be to lose a little weight, uh, to prevent heart disease, and uh, to prevent diabetes and kidney disease. I think if people would say, listen, if I, if I could do that with my diet, I'd be really happy. So um, along those lines, uh, the way to think about diet and weight loss is that about 80% of weight loss that we see is actually through diet, about 20% is through exercise. So we need, we need both. Exercise plays a bigger role in weight maintenance as opposed to weight loss. Now, among diet, uh, we know to lose weight, it takes both making healthy choices and controlling portions, both. So, uh, so in that diet part, it's always healthy choices and portion control. Okay. So the healthy choices part of it is, in my view, is to pick priorities. To me, the priorities would be high quality sources of protein. And that's in the following order, fish, beans, nuts, egg whites, nonfat dairy, and occasional lean meats, and then fresh fruits and vegetables, which are unlimited. Uh, and if one could do it uh, at least two days a week, being a vegetarian, I think would be perfectly fine. If you can do more than that, that's perfectly fine. The reason why proteins are ordered in that, in that kind of uh, inverse pyramid is uh, the, the polypeptides in protein is the same, by the way. The, the, pro, the polypeptides in salmon is the same in, that's in bacon. Uh, the difference is the package. You know, salmon or fish is packaged in, in essential um, uh, uh, unsaturated fat that's actually good for the body, whereas red meat is pack, packaged in saturated fat, which directly causes uh, blood vessel blockages and, and stimulates cholesterol production. So, um, so that would be uh, high quality sources, fresh fruits and vegetables. The fresh fruits and vegetables are needed uh, to provide bulk in the, in the diet to kind of move the food stream along as well as to provide essential micronutrients and, and fiber. Now, there'd be three things to eliminate. People say, okay, well, what do I get out of the diet? Well, it would be things that the body doesn't need that are directly fat promoting directly cause diabetes and directly cause heart disease. So that's pretty easy. And so uh, they fall down to what's called the three S's, the three S's. The first S is sugars. We don't need any extra sugars. We get plenty of sugar. So people putting sugar in their drinks, drinking, uh, you know, regular pops, uh, people eating uh, sugary desserts, sugar is pretty simple. Get it out of the diet. The second S is starches. This is the big one. You know, for most people, 60% of their calories is starches. The human body does not need starch. Starch is just sugar molecules linked together. That's all it is. So that includes everything made with flour. Very important. I mean, don't need it. It's just starch. Remember, flour is sugar molecules linked together. That means all the baked goods, the muffins, the cookies, the crackers, the bagels. Uh, people know what starch is. And then starch also includes potatoes and rice. So if you get rid of starch, 
about 60% of the calories in the diet just goes away, which is absolutely wonderful. And then the last S is saturated fat. So if one could, they would achieve less than 10 grams of saturated fat intake per day. That means getting rid of fast foods, no burgers, no fries, uh, no fried chicken. That means getting rid of heavy gooey cheese and cheesecake and regular ice cream. Uh, So if one could achieve the diet that I just described and have good portion control, that's usually the ticket. Uh, Conversely, if one is eating a good diet, chances are they're not obese. I've never seen somebody become obese because they ate too many Granny Smith apples. Never, never happened. So people always want to negotiate. Well, can I have this type of bread? Like they have to eat bread. I said, well, now how about having no bread? Oh, you know, so I I think diet is always, uh, you know, diet is a lifelong art form and people who figure out diet in their life and they figure out their weight. Wow. Do they have it together? You see them walk into a room and everyone goes, that person has their life together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, but I think as you were listing that three S's of what not to eat, it just sounded so like the standard American diet, you know, I mean, every corner you have a fast food chain, it feels like gooey cheese on nachos or a cheeseburger, like these things just have permeated the culture. And I think that's where people have challenges is you go out to dinner with friends or family and what's on the menu, what are the choices, right? So there's such a conscious piece of this to say, okay, we're not going to go to these particular restaurants. I think eating out is where it gets really tough. And then at the grocery store, all the middle aisles, you know, that are all packaged goods. I, I think it's, it's just what's put in front of us on a daily basis that makes those decisions really tough. Yeah, we have to make conscious choices. I'd say the other thing about portion control is that, that eating ought to be hunger directed. We should never show up to a meal not hungry. We shouldn't be eating just because it's dinner time or lunchtime. And the human body doesn't need three meals a day. And so everybody can judge themselves. You know, if they if they have a breakfast and they're kind of cruising through the day, there's no reason to eat lunch. It's fine just to have a cup of water and work your way and then come home for dinner and be hungry as you approach dinner. I think that's perfectly fine. Everybody ought to slow down. Don't try to eat so fast. Slow down, socialize, talk for a while. um, you know, make sure you you really allow that food to to satisfy you. People wolf down their meals tend to eat too much. Um, I think if couples, if you're going out, go ahead and split the entree. You save a lot of money. Most of the time when you split an, an entree, you you know you're satisfied anyway. It's like, wow, if we would have ordered our own meals, we would have been overstuffed. There's no reason to order big meals and then take things home in a in a take-home bag. Just you know, you know, save money order a single entree, agree on what you want to order, uh, enjoy it. And that's a good way to, to keep those portions down. Trying to go two days a week vegetarian is really hard for some people. I meet some, you know, big Texas, West Texas ranchers. They're used to eating uh, barbecue and steak every day. I said, listen, you know, give it a break a, a few days and go vegetarian. That'll lighten up and take a lot of, you know, take a lot off the, the, the stress on the body. The last thing I bring up is two additional things that really work to raise blood pressure uh, and raise weight, weight in the body, and that's alcohol and salt. What we know about alcohol uh, in, in kind of a global assessment, even though a little bit of alcohol each day may raise the HDL cholesterol, uh, on average, alcohol in total is actually bad for the body. Uh, it promotes dementia macular degeneration in scientific studies, atrial fibrillation in cardiac studies, um, liver disease, cancer in the nose and the mouth and the stomach. I mean, everything about alcohol in total is bad for the body. And of course, you know, it leads to terrible things like car crashes and behavioral problems, uh, addiction. So if one could, they would actually stop drinking altogether. A lot of people, a lot of people have a seizure. A lot of these Canadians, I know Canadians are big hockey fans and, you know, they love to drink that Canadian beer. Uh, But I can tell you, there's a great book to read. It's called the 28 day alcohol challenge. And if people can go 28 days without drinking, it's amazing that sleep is restored. People feel better. They're more rested. They, they, they lose weight. The average person loses 15 pounds when they stop drinking alcohol. It's really amazing because alcohol can, the calories in alcohol can only be stored as fat. So you can never use them to burn. 
That's the problem with alcohol. The other thing people ought to consider is laying off the salt and salty foods because salt makes the body pick up water weight, always makes somebody heavier because they retain fluid. And then it works to raise blood pressure. There's no doubt about it. So simply uh, not adding salt on your meal and staying away from salty foods is really important. You go out to a fancy restaurant, tell them to lay off the salt because many times the salad and the entree is just so salty, you can barely uh, get through it. So that would be it. We've gotten a lot of dietary advice. I thought this was going to be on pandemic response, but um, I think these are important. We're going to have to close it out. I have time for about one more question. All right. I think, you know what, you, you talked a little bit about slowing down while eating. I would just say, I always love to touch upon the, the mental health component. So everybody's talking mindfulness, everybody's talking stress, sleep, right? So what, what do we need to be doing there? What's your, what's your estimation on really, how do we slow down? Because I think that that's so critical to stress management. Well, people say, well, how do I relieve stress? And, and the literature there is pretty clear. Far and away, the best stress reliever is exercise, predominantly aerobic exercise. So everybody can get in some aerobic exercise, go outside, jogging, walking, bicycling, get that heart rate up, break a sweat. You've got to get to the point where you're sweating. Uh, That's wonderful. Then pop in the pool or go for a swim, take a shower. Aerobic exercise is the best stress reliever at all. It, it, uh, it, It improves so many aspects about life, improves cardiovascular conditioning, reduces cardiovascular uh, risks, makes it more likely that one can survive something terrible like a heart attack or pneumonia, Uh, helps maintain weight loss, improves sexual function. I mean, there are so many good things about aerobic exercise. In general, we advise aerobic exercise combined with strength. Uh, And the best is interval. If you could go run a few miles and then really run hard for about a thousand meters, boy, that's the best. Uh, And then jog it on home. That would be uh, a great recipe. Uh, uh, you, you know, that leads to the best sleep. Some people ask about sleep supplements. We, we tend not to recommend sleeping pills or sleep supplements, but I have found one that's, um, that's very useful. I, I do have them um, uh, advertised on my podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report. And it's called Healthy Cell. And a Healthy Cell, the, the one that I have used personally and recommending family members is called the Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. It comes in a micro gel pack, like a, a gel that you take during a 5K race. Just do it before bed consistently. It doesn't help put the person to sleep, but it improves the quality of sleep. And when the quality of sleep is improved, then there's less stress hormones the next day. Stress is down. Then one has a good day, and then they have another good night. It becomes a progressively favorable cycle. So I tell people, listen, take it every day. People struggling with sleep, take it every day for 90 days straight. I don't have any financial conflict of interest in this, but I, I do have it in my household. And particularly in my elderly uh, relatives uh, that just as you get older, actually sleep starts to degrade healthy cell. And I think it plays a big role. Wonderful. So much advice to take home today and just change our daily lives. I really appreciate your time, Dr. McCullough. Again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.